Amen. All glory be to Christ, our King. <clears throat> Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we give thanks to you for the glory and the majesty of your Son. Everything was created by him and for him. All things exist for the express purpose of magnifying his glory and his majesty. For this reason, Lord, we pray that you would turn our eyes away from self. By nature, we are selfish. We want our own, our own wills, our own desires, our own wants. Help us, Lord, to focus on Christ and him crucified. Pray that you would magnify your word, that you would receive the glory. Speak this, Lord. Speak this morning, O Lord, and cause our ears to be inclined to your word, that we may be changed for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Because we are, <clears throat> we have our AGM this morning. I do have a bit of a scratchy throat, so uh, do excuse me if I <clears throat> cough and clear my throat quite a lot. Since we have the AGM this morning, I thought it would be good if I focus on church life or anything related to church dynamic that will honor the Lord. So I thought that it would be good for us to learn lessons from an exemplary church, this church in Thessalonica. What should a church look like? What should a church be like? What are the qualities of a church that honors God in the midst of affliction, difficulty, and trouble? <clears throat> this morning we will look at a church that Paul considers to be an exemplary church or a model <clears throat> church. A church that became an example not only to those in their own community but also outside. In our passage this morning, we look at an imperfect church, yet a model church. The introduction to this book is actually the entire chapter 1 of First Thessalonians. So I'm going to do what I've never done before and preach four sermons in one. So I'm going to cover the entire chapter, which would normally take me about four to ten sermons <laughs> in one sermon. <clears throat> And today I will finish it. I will finish it. And now I said that last week. This is a unique chapter on a number of fronts. Paul, nowhere in the, his writings, commends a church like he does this church. There's no correction in this first chapter, unlike every other chapter that he writes. There's no mention of internal struggles in this first chapter, unlike every other chapter that he writes. But Paul, in this exemplary chapter, describing this exemplary church, defines what a godly, God-honoring, Christ-magnifying church looks like. And it will surprise you the context in which the church came to exist. Now, I'm not going to turn to Acts chapter 17, but that's the beginning of this church. Because if I turn there, I'm not going to leave there, which means we will not have lunch today. But in Acts chapter 17, the preaching, Paul goes to the synagogue and he preaches the gospel in the synagogue. And then they reject the gospel. So he goes to the city and he meets a few ladies and he preaches the gospel to them. And they come to saving faith. And so the gospel spreads to such a degree that it causes a stir in this community. 
They were causing problems in this community. And one of the primary problems was that Jesus that Paul preached was a rival to Caesar. Why? Because Caesar was not only, quote-unquote, Lord over Thessalonica, but he was treated as a god. One that deserved devotion, one that should be worshipped. And so what Caesar says, Caesar gets. It's interesting, the passage this morning by God's divine providence mentions, Paul writes to the uh, Philippians, that those from the household of who? Caesar send their greeting. That is huge. Now, not that Caesar was any comparison or a competition for Jesus, but those under the rule of Caesar saw Jesus as a threat to the reign and the rule of Caesar. Because Caesar was the supreme ruler. I wonder where that term was used. And he rightfully deserved their devotion. The government was opposed by the preaching of Jesus. They saw it as a threat to Caesar's power, a threat to Caesar's rule. And in the midst of this situation, the gospel goes out and people get saved. Understand that under Rome, there was ideological, philosophical, and psychological manipulation. You bow or you died. There was a perceived freedom. You could have any religion you want. You could worship any god you want as long as it wasn't a problem under Caesar. As long as it didn't disagree with the worship of Caesar. The rise of a religion that did not bow the knee to Caesar, to his reigning authority, was a threat to Caesar. It's no different today, is it? The minute a Christian church desires to do its own thing, regardless of what the government says, what happens? They get cancelled. Or they get put in jail. The uproar in the city of Thessalonica was because of religious conflict. The decrees of Caesar was seen as opposing the rule of Christ in the church of Christ. The church understood that there was one king over the church and they will not bow the knee to another king. To preach another king is a rival to Caesar. They were devoted, but they rightfully understood that they were in opposition to Caesar. In the midst of this, there was, how does Paul put it, uh, Luke put it, there was a riot that resulted. The community was in uh, uh, an uproar. How about being part of a church that causes a community uproar? That, that so much so that the politicians and the religious leaders come together and they agree that there's a problem with this community. Imagine that. I would put my hand up, yes. I want to be part of that. We frown on that today. We think that we have a better model. We think that we can solve human problems by human solutions. We think that social justice is a problem. Is a solution to human problems. We think that social awareness is a, is a solution to human problems. We think that social change is a solution to human problems. We think that bowing to social pressure is a solution to human problems. The reason there was an uproar or a stir in the community is because the gospel was in the city center. The gospel was in the religious center. The gospel was in the education center. The gospel was taking over the city. So that's why there was a community uproar. They were rejecting and fighting against the influence and the impact of the gospel. Moreover, the gospel was in the family center. Homes were being changed. And this is why the gospel caused a stir. I think the problem today is that 
we've relegated the gospel to church life or religious life only. So when it comes to your work, when it comes to your family, when it comes to your life outside of church, we really don't subscribe to the gospel. Yet the gospel affects every aspect of the church's life. That's what we see in this church in Thessalonica. So Paul, after he's begun to minister in this community, they, are, they force him out. And because he has to leave in such a hurry, he is saddened by the fact that he can't minister to this church. But now listen to chapter 3, verse 6. He's now in Corinth, and he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica, to this church, to find out how they're doing. He says in verse 6 of chapter 3, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast. In the Lord. For what thanks can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before God, as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see your face, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul is encouraged by them, he's encouraged that they are steadfast. He's encouraged. He says, now we live because you are continuing on in the faith. Get this, that Paul is writing from Corinth to this church. From a disappointing church to a very encouraging church. From a church that is limping through life to a church that is thriving in the Christian walk. What a contrast. Despite the hardship and the affliction and the struggles that Paul was facing, he says, you know what? When we remember you, we rejoice. We are encouraged by you. We are encouraged by your faithfulness. What a commendation. You spurned us on to life. That's your testimony, he says. What a legacy they have left behind. And we will learn from them this morning. So as we go through this chapter, I want you to note four works of God in the church of Thessalonica. Four works of God. Number one, the work of God acknowledged in verse one. The work of God manifested in verse two to three. The work of God experienced in verse four to five. And then the work of God expressed. In verse 6 to 10. Acknowledged, manifested, experienced, and expressed the work of God. All these are sermons in and of themselves. But I will, I will cover, my sermon will cover most of it will be point 1 and 2. And then I'll just wrap it up with point 3 and 4. So let's give attention to the work of God acknowledged. Read with me verse 1. Paul, Salvinus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. I take every word of God seriously. I believe that God inspired every single word that is in his word. So it's important. Even introductions. And often we just jump over introductions because it is an introduction. Yet Paul here in the salutation says to them, I greet you because of who you are. And I want you to take note of two things, two prepositions. Of, you can circle that, and in. And I'll explain that when we get to it. The church of, and then the church in. This is different to how he addresses other churches. Often Paul will use his apostolic credentials. Paul, an apostle, 
slave of Christ. But he doesn't do that. He just says Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Paul does not attract any attention to himself. But he places emphasis on their relationship with God. He does not say Paul, the founder of this church in Thessalonica. The one who established this ministry, no, but all the glory goes to the one who is ultimately the founder of this church. God. And when we see this word church, to the church, please do not make the mistake that many do, where they take ek and, and klesia and they say it's called out once. That's not the meaning of the word. If you look it up, it means congregation or assembly or a gathering together. That's the meaning of this word. And so when you see this word church, think in terms of the gathering of the saints, the collection of believers or the assembly of the saints. All of those are accurate representations of this word. And so he says to the congregation of the saints of the Thessalonians in God. What a statement. A community of the saints in God. Let's take a look at that first preposition. To the church of the Thessalonians. That is a strange way of saying to the church who is at Thessalonica. Usually Paul would say to the church in Ephesus or the church at Galatia or in the region of Galatia. This is a really strange thing to say. Now it would be correct to say the church in Thessalonica because they are located, but that's not Paul's point. The people who were saved out of Thessalonians are now part of the church that meets in Thessalonica, but they are not identified by their location. They were identified as a people of God. Steve Lawson rightly asserts that the church is not identified by its street address, by, but by its people. The church of the Thessalonians. People who were saved out of Thessalonica. They were not identified as those who were in Thessalonica, but those who were out of, taken out of, called out of. This could be the same old, uh, said as uh, of, of Living Hope. We are not the church at Alphendale. We are maybe the church of the southern suburbs. Living Hope of the Western Cape. or Living Hope of Cape Town, or as I put it, Living Hope of South Africa, because we were the first. Location does not define a church, but the community of the saints does. Notice in, in addition to that, he says, it's a church who are out of the Thessalonians, but are in God. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They are out of Thessalonica, but they are in God. This means that your location may change. They may be forced out of Thessalonica, but their primary relationship will never be changed. The substantive foundation of their existence, which is in God, can never be removed. In, in God, the Father distinguishes them from the pagan assemblies, the pagan religious collections, because this word Ecclesia, this word church, was used of both the congregation of the believers and the congregation of unbelievers, but he, he identifies who they are. It's a congregation, a meeting together of the saints who are first and foremost founded in God and then in the Lord Jesus Christ. That last phrase there, the Lord Jesus Christ, distinguishes them from the Jewish sect. So not, all, not only are they identified in God and find their, their, their existence in God, but also they identify 
in Jesus as distinct from those Jews who merely just believed in God, the Father. Location should never define a church. I think that's important for us to remember since we are looking for another location. Our relationship with God is far more important than where we meet. Being in God is far more important than where God moves us to. God may take us to an area which we may be uncomfortable with, but that doesn't define us as a church. A church is defined by its relationship with God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me put it this way. Both are required for a church to be a church. You must have a relationship with God and you must have the relationship with Jesus Christ. You cannot have a relationship with just one and not the other. The, the church finds its life in, the church is rooted in, and the church is established in God and in Jesus. This means that the church is not identified by its culture. And yes, every church has a culture. As much as we try to deny that God has given us a certain dynamic which is true to our culture, what we have um, developed in, in this church, is part of God making us unique. What Grace Community is, is unique to Grace Community Church. What every other church is, is unique to that church. And so we, do, we shouldn't try to duplicate what another church has. That is that church's culture. And it is, it is good for that church to express itself within its own culture. But that doesn't define us. That's not who we are. Our identity and our definition of what we are is rooted in God and in Christ. The identity of the church is founded in the Lord. It's important that Paul doesn't put Lord in front of God the Father, which he could because it's true, but he puts it in front of Jesus Christ, emphasizing his equality with God, the one who rules over all, the one who's sovereign over all, the one who is equal with God. And he says, this is the one in whom the church is founded. Not only God, but also in Jesus Christ, who is Lord. In other words, you cannot have God without having the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say it this way. You do not have a relationship with God if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ first. These saints gathered to worship. These believers gathered to worship because of their relationship with God. These are the saints of the Thessalonians. It is also important to note that Paul identifies them as a collection of saints who gather together. The church of the Thessalonians, grace to you all, all of you, ye, as in old English, grace to all of you and peace. They gather together, they meet together, they devoted together, they work together, they labor together, they love together because they are one local church. I don't think we get that. The community of the saints, let me put it this way, and I'll get back to this later. God saves believers to be in a community of saints. God saves believers not to be independent mavericks or Lone Rangers. What's the other guy who played soccer? Madonnas. Is it? No, no, that's Maradonas. Sorry, Madonna is... A... No, no. God saves us to be in a community. You find all this in verse 1. What's the use of being saved and you never commit to a local church? They were not running from church to church. Maybe when they traveled from place to place, they would go to a church. But their church was in Thessalonica. They identified as members, as community gatherers in that church. They were saints of the church of Thessalonica. We often forget that. 
Today we have saints running after experience. This church to that church to that church until they find an experience good enough to hold them long enough and then they're done. Then they move on. Either you, you don't understand what a local church is or you're searching for something or someone. The someone is probably most true. The Bible requires devotion to a local assembly. And that's what Paul is emphasizing here. You are a local church who gathers together at Thessalonica. The challenge today is there is such a decline in devotion to local churches. Because we truly don't fully understand what it means to be part of local church. A healthy, fruitful, impactful church is a church that understands its duty, its duty, commit to its commission, and submits to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Those who are on the fringes tend to struggle in those areas. They struggle in commitment. They struggle with the commission, meaning the great commission, and they struggle with submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. A church that is founded in God is a church that meets for God and not themselves. So not only do we find acknowledgement of the work of God right in the beginning of this verse, uh, of this chapter, but also we see the manifestation of the work of God. Verse 2 to 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, or ye, constantly mentioning ye in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work, that's all of you, all of your work of faith, and labor of love, and steadfast of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll pause there. We give thanks, making mention of all of you. In these two verses, we see the work of God manifested in the midst of this congregation of the Thessalonians. Notice Paul says we give thanks to God. We don't give thanks to you. We are not thankful for our work. We are thankful to God. See, the minute we start focusing on people, we steal glory from God. Thanks be to God for the work that he has done in your midst. The minute we focus on people, we tend to think that ministry cannot function apart from that people. If we think that we are in a, uh, uh, we'll be hugely surprised. Because God does not need you. He does not need your giftedness. He does not need your talent in order for the church to survive and to be sustained. God sustains despite the people that are around us. We thank God, Paul says, because he is the architect of the work that is taking place in Thessalonica. What does he remember about this church? Notice he says, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering. So the mentioning is as they are remembering what? Your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfast hope. Three nouns. Work, labor, and steadfast. I know that it sounds verbal. These are nouns that have verbal sense to it, but they are not verbs. They are nouns. Work, labor, steadfast. And then three modifiers of faith, of love, and of hope. These modifiers aim to qualify and explain the function or the meaning or the activity of the noun. So it could be explained as the work produced by faith or the labor promoted by love, or the steadfastness motivated by hope. One author said it this way, work of faith could mean the work that comes from faith. Labor of love could mean the labor that flows from love. And steadfastness of hope means the steadfastness, steadfastness that comes from hope. All of these obviously require further explanation. And so I will take my time to explain them further. What does he mean when he says, Work of faith. Let me ask you, where does faith come from? From God. 
So that's why he gives thanks to God because of the work of faith. Faith that God gives is faith that works. God does not give dead faith, unresponsive faith. That is a sign of an unbeliever. God gives faith that works. The absence of faith or the faith of fools is not so much the absence of work, but the work that flows from self and for self and to self. The reason people do stuff is because they want to magnify themselves. But faith that results in works flows from a work of God for the work of God. One author says it this way, true faith that saves one's soul includes at least three main elements. One, firm persuasion or firm conviction. Two, a surrender to truth. And three, a conducting, emanating from that surrender. What this means then is that faith shows itself in genuine changed life activity. Faith does not sit on their hands. The word work here can mean any deed or any act, and yeah, it can be thought in that terms, but often when it's used in the, in the uh, scriptures related to church, it is often good work that is in view. I think it's Titus chapter 1 verse, is it 2 verse 11 or 1 verse 11 says, he say, let me just, uh, 2 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bring salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, that is the works of the flesh, the works of the world, and worldly passion, and to, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, that is the, the new uh, works, uh, uh, godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of our uh, uh, of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness—that's works of the flesh—and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, who are zealous for good. Works. God saves us for good works. And then he says to Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. In other words, don't back down on this. Jesus not only died to save us, but died so that we may work for him. True faith is a working faith. Notice in chapter 2 of Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. This is the work that we should be praying for. To this end, we always pray for you that God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. I don't know if you got that. I'm praying that God would cause you to perform the work that God wants you to perform by His power. The emphasis is not on you, but that God would effect the work that is begun in you so that it can be evident that there is a work of faith active in your life so that you may demonstrate it in what you do. Notice that the prayer is that God would make them worthy of the call, that they would demonstrate the reality that they are saved. Paul's desire is for the church of Jesus Christ to live in a way that shows that they have been changed by God's work. The emphasis is in God. That God would produce it, that God would continue it, and that God would sustain the work of faith in your life. Often prayers are focused on the sick and the needs. And, and it's not wrong to pray for these things. But notice what Paul focuses on. That which brings glory to God. It is aimed at God accomplishing His desire and His will 
despite our needs and despite our cranky bones and despite our hurting backs and our toes. Despite those things, God must still be glorified in how we invest ourselves in doing the work that God has given us to do. Ailing health is never a reason for us to cease from serving God. And I mean this with all respect, unless you've lost your mind, of course. I mean, that's obvious that you can't function in that way. Later on, Paul acknowledges that he doesn't even need to tell them how to love one another because God himself has taught them how to love one another. Despite the fact that God has worked in their life, he still prays that God will continue to work in their life. Pray that that would be our prayers for one another. It's this work that the saints must engage in. The work of ministry. Understand that the work of ministry is not only for the church leaders. Not only are we active in ministry, but every saint, every child of God must work the, faith, the work of faith. Why is it important? Why is work of faith so important? Why is demonstrating the reality of faith so important to Paul? Well, we learned from James that faith without works is what? Dead. Just like a body without a soul or spirit, depending on which translation you have. Interesting men who were part of the study, James only mentions two parts. I'm just putting it out there. Nevertheless, faith must be seen in works, which this Thessalonian church clearly put on display. This faith is deeply rooted in God. Because of who God is, because of what God did, because of what God has done, there's an expectation for works to be present in this church. I like the Latin um, explanations of the presence of faith within the life of the believer. It includes the Noticia, which is a positive recognition of the truth. Then it includes the ascensus, which is a deep conviction of the truth. And then it includes the fiducia, which includes a personal trust in Jesus as Lord, but also the surrender to His will. Absolutely. That is what it means to have faith. It's not just a mental ascent. It is a faith that trusts in Christ and works for Christ. It is not faith that works for salvation, but faith that works from salvation. Why is this important? Let me tell you why. I'll illustrate it this way. Spectators do not participate in the action that they, are participate, that they are spectating. Make sense, right? You watch a sport, you are a spectator, you are seeing it. And you may enjoy uh, the sport, you may enjoy to see things unfold, you may cheer on with uh, passionate exuberance and exuberance and excitement. And if you ever watch sport with me, I do apologize because I do love to raise my voice. But the spectator is not the participant. That's all that they are. They're spectators. They may love what they see and they may be in favor of what they see and they may encourage what they see, but they are not doing it. That is what work, a faith without work is. It's being a spectator of faith at work, but never participating in the faith that actually works. Doesn't matter how much you enjoy to see God work. Doesn't matter how much you cheer on the work of God. Doesn't matter how much you encourage the work of God. If you are not participating in the work of God, meaning faith that results in work, then there's a question about the faith. Then you are not, may not be 
in the race. Passive, passive observers are nothing but that. Passive observers. They know nothing of the race, but they know a lot about standing on the sidelines, and they'll tell you how it should be done, but they don't raise a finger to do it. That is not faith that works. Faith must work in order for faith to be authentic. Not only is there faith that works, but also there's love that labors, or a labor of love. So secondly, this idea of labor of love flows from the idea that there's faith that is present, resulting in works. This love is also being granted and gifted by God. This is love that is alien to humanity. It is hard-working love, whereas work may be pleasurable, may be um, in, encouraged and, and pursued. Labor gives intensity, gives the idea of great discomfort, striving to the point of exhaustion. That is this word here. It can mean fatigue. It can mean trouble or hardship and yet still going on. It is selfless in that it does not care about the exhaustion it is experiencing. It conveys a sense of labor that involves toil, fatigue, suffering, weariness, and sorrow. And thus it speaks of intense suffering for the sake of others. This is labor prompted by love, labor motivated by love, labor that results because, is a result of, because of the presence of love. This means this labor is not easy. And so love motivates you to do it even though it's not easy to do. This means showing up at great cost to yourself. This means prioritizing others and not yourself. This means letting go of your own wants, your own designs, your own plans, but loving others and giving them your first and your best, which drives you to exhaustion. Being wasted for others. This is love alien to us. Why do I say that? Because man naturally has a tendency to love himself. Man naturally has a tendency to put himself first. But this love that comes from God prioritizes God and then man. This is a pouring out of oneself for God and for others with no complaint, with no desire for praise, with no eye on another, with no quarreling. This is love seen in tiresome labor. Notice how Paul illustrates it in chapter 2, verse 9. He actually describes the quality of the preachers, those who ministered in their midst, he says, for you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil, those are agonizing words. We worked night and day that we may not burden any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel. And often this is used to say, well, there you go. Pastors are not supposed to be paid. Just work for free. Uh, no, that's not what it means. He's saying that they worked so that they would not cause the church to be burdened. You are witnesses, and, and God also, how holy or holily, we, because um, it's an adjective, and righteously and blamelessly was our conduct toward you and believers. In other words, you were witnesses of how we sacrificed, how we conducted ourselves in your midst. That's the point. What a tremendous example. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 8, he says the same thing. Verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil 
and labor. We worked night and day that we may not be a burden to you. In other words, we did not add any pressure to you than we, we, um, we did not need to. In fact, in that same chapter, he says, you know what? As apostles, we could have exacted it from you. We could have asked you to give, but we didn't because we love you so much. We labored. We, we put ourselves at a disadvantage for you. That's what love does. Love sacrifices for the sake of the saints. If a church wants to grow in its love, it needs to grow in its ability to sacrifice. I'm always amazed at how those who suffer most are those who sacrifice the most. They have no problem giving of their time, their energy, their resources, their love, their efforts for the saints. Not only is there a work of faith, a labor of love, but also their steadfast hope. I love this. What does this mean? This word could mean the act of bearing up underneath difficulty or facing a trial. This word steadfast. And that's often how it's used. And so commentators and, and uh, lexicons presume that is what Paul is after here. And often that is what is meant when this word is used because it is used in the context of suffering. But he's not talking about suffering yet. What is Paul talking about? It is hard to miss the eschatological tone in this. Endurance of hope. Let me put it this way. Hope that results in endurance. Hope that results in patient suffering. This means to bear up under pressure, but having a reason to bear up underneath that pressure. This means to keep on going on while going on. But there's a reason for keeping on and going on. Notice in verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, For they, your works, themselves report concerning us what kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son. That is the hope. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So this world is not the end. This period of history that is so hurtful and painful is not the ultimate state. Look at chapter 2 verse 29. For what is our hope and our joy and our crown of boasting before our Lord at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Again, hope is connected to the return of Jesus Christ. The coming of the Lord is emphatic in this book 3, 13. Um, I'm going from 12. And... That you, that the Lord, uh, and maybe the Lord make you increase and abounding in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that you may be established in your hearts, blameless and in, in holiness before our Lord and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The coming of the Lord is the hope of the saints. Think about that. The reason we endure is because we know Jesus is coming back. They endure. They persevere. They persist because they know that the one who will rectify the wrong is on his way. I mean, if Jesus came, if he's already come, why are we enduring? If we are in the kingdom, shouldn't we be raiding? We should not need to endure anymore. Paul acknowledges that their life on earth will include hardship, affliction, suffering. But despite that, there is steadfastness because of the hope that they have. It's good for us to have trials. Trials 
produces endurance. What causes believers to endure through trials is the hope that the suffering of this life is not the eternal state for us as God's people. A right understanding of eschatology, eschatology produces a right present hope. It's not dependent on the church to change circumstances. It is hoping that Jesus would come to change the circumstance of the church. God has energized his saints and propelled them into a work that honors him, resulting from faith, instilling an attitude of labor, love for others, and coming from love for him and solidifying their hope because of the knowledge that Jesus will return. Paul is not expecting them to pull up their socks and just do better. He's expecting them to continue to endure because Jesus is coming back. How do I know that the hope is in the return of Jesus? Because he tells us, he says, steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the fact that he will return. This hope has a positive effect on the life of God's people. Faith works, love labors, hope endures. Faith looks back at the finished work of Christ. Love looks at the manifest work of Christ. And hope looks forward to the coming of Christ. So not only did we see the work of God acknowledged, the work of God expressed, but now let's look at the work of God experienced. Verse 4 and 5. Notice what Paul says. For we know, brothers, beloved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, and that you became imitators of us and not uh, uh, um, sorry, of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and with much, uh, um, in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit. The work of God is expressed in that they were chosen by God. For we know. Brothers, loved by God, or beloved brothers would probably be better. Beloved brothers, that he has chosen you. The word literally just means chosen of God. Chosen by God, or chosen of God. Interesting statement. We are sure of God's election of you. That's a strange thing to say. I thought that only God can know what and who his elect are. But Paul says that we are absolutely sure. In fact, the word know there is we know without a shadow of a doubt God's election of you. How do we know? Notice what he says right after that. Because a gospel came to you, not in word, but also in power and in full conviction. We've seen the effects of the work of God in your life. We've witnessed that God has actually saved you. This is not fake. This is not put on. This is not hypocrisy. You are genuinely saved because you've manifested the work of God in, in you. It's not their call of God that saved them, but it's God's election of them that saved them. I think a proper understanding of election helps us understand the church of Jesus Christ. God chose us to be in fellowship with his people. Did not choose us to be in fellowship with ourselves. God chose his people to have first union with him and then union with his people. And you can see that in the section. 
Notice Paul says, after mentioning that God's election of them, he says, our gospel came to you in word and in power. And I just want to mention this. Just because Paul believed in election doesn't mean it negated the preaching of the gospel. Often we think, well, if God elects, why do I have to preach the gospel? Well, because the gospel saves. It's the means through which God's elect will come to salvation. And that's proven here. We know that you are God's elect because you responded to the gospel. The gospel came to you not in word only. Take note of that. The gospel is not acted out. It's, it's not put on display by people who jump around and mime it. The gospel is in word. And notice what he says after that. But in power and in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction, all of that goes together. The power, the conviction came with the Spirit. The fact that the Word was able to bring conviction, the fact that the Word was able to save is because the Spirit was present when the Word was communicated to them. And so the work of the Spirit is manifest in the fact that they received the Word of God for what it truly is. Notice what he says in verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. You received the word for what it truly is, which is the word of God. The word of God preached. The word of God preached in the way that God gave it is the word that changes lives. And when it changes lives, you can see the change that God is doing in those people's lives, and you can be sure that they are God's elect. That's what Paul says, that I am sure of his choice of you because the work that is done in you. Another way that he can see it is because of what is mentioned in verse 3. The work of faith, the labor of love, and the, and the steadfastness of their hope are evidences that God has chosen them. Those are not signs of those who are fake in the faith, those are signs of those who are genuinely saved. God does not produce half Christians. He doesn't pull you halfway and then say, okay, fine, now you have to do the rest. When he saves, he saves completely. God not only saves, but he saves to a community. That is how Jesus is building his church. He's not building his church by saving individuals and just leaving them dangling outside of the church. He saves them to be part of a local church to demonstrate that they are part of his universal church. Jesus saves by place and places us into communities where we will honor him, love his people, and demonstrate that he has saved us. Let me ask you this question. If you're not part of a local church, how do you demonstrate that you are saved. Who, who witnesses that you are saved? If God has saved us for himself, by himself, and to himself, then he's got the right to determine how you need to live. Is it then not disobedience and rebelliousness to refuse to be part of his people? Yes, it is. Without a true work of salvation, there will not be true signs of salvation. The gospel that Paul mentions here, the gospel of God, the gospel that came to you, is not apart from election, and election is not apart from the gospel. We need to preach a great and a gracious God to a grace-needing people. We don't need to meet the felt needs. We don't need to remove their socioeconomic status. We don't need to change the pursue social justice. We don't need to pursue social reform. What they need is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul adds something interesting at the end of verse 5. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And he gets back to that in chapter 2 and in um, 4 through to 8 and then 13 through to 14, but we don't have time to go through that. But what that means here is that you know our consistency in preaching. 
We were not hypocrites. You know what kind of men we proved to be for your sake. We were genuine preachers of the gospel. So yes, the word has to go out, but those who preach the word also have to live a life that honors God. There has to be consistency in the lives of God's preachers. Fourthly, the work of God expressed in verse 6 through to 10. I'll just mention it and then we'll end. How do we see the work of God in the lives of God's people? Joy in affliction. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy that comes from the Holy Spirit, is the sense. With the joy of the Holy Spirit. So yes, you are saved and yes, you are elect. But this is how we know that you, you are God's elect. Because you demonstrate the joy in much affliction. You demonstrate joy in much affliction. It's not fleeing from affliction. It's not asking God to remove the affliction. But it's demonstrating joy. Where did we hear that before? James chapter 1. Verse 3, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face many or diverse sufferings. The work of God is expressed in joy in the life of God's people. Secondly, we see a sounding board for the gospel. Notice what it says in verse 7. So you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your Faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we do not need to say anything. In other words, your activity, the demonstration of your faith has sounded forth that God is at work in your midst. Not only is it the preaching of the gospel, but the lives that these people lived demonstrates that God has changed them. Then there is a demonstration illustration of repented hearts. See this in verse 9. For they themselves, this is your works, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. In other words, you didn't reject the gospel. You received the gospel that we preached. And how, as you, you received the gospel, you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. That's repentance. They changed from serving a diversity of idols to the true, the living, the only God. There is a change about from bowing before things, you now bow before the only one who directs and receives, rightfully supposed to receive your devotion. This is not replacing an one idol for another. This is a new heart that replaces all idols with the true and the living God. God's election does not mitigate personal expression of that work. They turned to God because the gospel was preached and because God called them to salvation. And lastly, there's an anticipation of Christ. Notice what it says in verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The gospel results in hope. Jesus died, was raised, and he went into the heavens, and God's people believe that he will return. This is the hope that we have. The work of God is expressed not only in changed life, but having a future expectation of the return of Jesus Christ. They are connected. Not only were you caused to turn, but also caused to wait for His Son. That raises an interesting point. So if Jesus has come then, what are we waiting for? There's no hope. Then this is fulfilled. Then why do we have church? 
to wait for his son from heaven. Notice what it says in the last. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. For those of you who are not saved, the just execution of God's wrath on the unbelieving world is still to come. And until that day, grace is available. You can still repent. You can still come to him as Lord and Savior. But that day when he comes in his wrath to judge you for your rebellion and unbelief, there will be no grace. It will be the wrath of God that will be poured out on you. Today, there is hope and there is grace. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the example of this church as we see them manifesting your work in their lives in the variety of different ways. And we yearn for, for similar work to be done in us, Lord. Produce faith that results in work. Give us love that will labor without complaint. Grant us hope in the midst of suffering and affliction. Give us endurance through the afflictions of this life. Father, thank you for this church and for the work you are already doing. And we pray that you will continue to dig deep into our hearts and change our minds, change our lives, change our attitudes that you would be glorified in all that we do and all that we decide for your glory, for your name's sake. So pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.